We've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew for, actually, I always say this and I never do the math, I guess two years, it's been a while. I preached the first sermon, so I guess I should know. And Matthew has been taking a section by section, showing us different things that he wants us to see. There, there, we have four Gospels in the Scriptures, four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they're not just like, what do I remember about Jesus? Let me write it down so there's a historical record. There's very specific intent going into their works. And so we've seen Matthew specifically showing us something. And in this section that we've been in for a few weeks, uh, right after a big section on the rejection of Jesus, the people that should be accepting him as their Messiah, they reject him. The Jewish leaders, his own family, his hometown all reject him. We see now this slowly unfolding section of revelation of who Jesus is. And today we finally get to the climax of this section, what the church for 2,000 years has called the Great Confession. Peter's great confession. And most commentators will actually point out this isn't just the climax of this section. This is actually the climax of the whole gospel up to this point. The passage we're going to look at today is it acts kind of like a hinge between everything we've talked about for the past two years and everything we will talk about for the next year and a half. Again, I haven't done the math. Uh, but this is the passage. Everything has been leading up to this great confession that Peter is going to make, and everything will be different after Peter makes this great confession. And so we are going to learn who is this Jesus that we've been reading about? Who is this Jesus that we've heard preached over and over and over again through Matthew? And then more specifically, what has Jesus, this Christ, come to do? What has he come to do? And so we'll look at three things. We'll see today a confession, the confession, We'll see the keys and we'll see the cross. You can thank Lee for that phonetic. The confession, the keys, and the cross. Look at verse 13. We'll look at that first section, the great confession. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So notice right at the beginning, uh, Matthew's giving you clues here. They're in a new region, a new district. That's usually a clue for there's, there's going to be a shift in the story. Jesus has left the big crowds. Jesus has left a pharisaical debate, all these sorts of things. And now he's alone. He's in this region, Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles north of Capernaum, where Jesus has been doing a lot of his ministry. It's barely within the borders of Israel. Still to this day, if you go to this place, Caesarea Philippi, you'll pass, it's a little sketchy, you'll pass a lot of barbed wire fence with warning signs that just have pictures of mines on them because you're about to cross the border and it's not safe on the other side. And then you're, you know, you're on your Bible tour and it's great. So go to Israel. But uh, you know, it's, it's very north. It's, it's primarily Gentile in Jesus' day. And so here's the scene. Everything we've seen thus far, Jesus is constantly getting erupted, interrupted by these great crowds. Even if he wants to be alone with his disciples, he's got to put them in a boat and go out to the middle of the sea. There's tons of times where he wants to get alone with them, but then great crowds show up and just interrupt them. And Jesus has compassion and wants to feed them and different things like that. And so here we see the people here aren't recognizing him. They're in a Gentile nation. There's no large crowd kind of descending on them, rather he's finally alone with his disciples. And so Jesus takes this opportunity in this region where he's not known to, to have a conversation with his disciples, to ask them a very, very, very important question. 
you might say, the most important question that could be asked because he wants to clear something up in their minds. So look at verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's one of Jesus' most common titles. Who do people say that I am is what he's asking. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And if you've been uh, with us for the past two years-ish, this has been the question of Matthew. Over and over and over and over again, we see Jesus doing these incredible things and he leaves the crowd searching for answers. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount and after the sermon is done, the crowd is speechless with astonishment. Who is this who has such authority? He does not preach or teach like the Pharisees and the scribes. There's something different about this man. Who is this? We see even the disciples themselves, Jesus calms the storm and do they say, whoa, nice miracle. No, they are trembling in fear and say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He heals the great crowds. You see the same reaction, speechless worship. Who is this? This is not just a normal rabbi. This is not just another teacher another teacher of the law that we have. There's something about this man that is different. Everybody has that question. There is no one who ignores him. He makes it impossible. You have to have an answer for who Jesus is. His words and his work demand you give an answer. And so he asked the disciples, who does everybody say that I am? And they skip over the answer we've seen the Pharisees give, which is he's a demon-possessed person. He's got this great power, that's undeniable, but he does that through the power of demons. We saw that earlier, but the disciples, you know, move past the awkward one and they give a couple other answers. They give, some say that you're John the Baptist. If you remember, that was King Herod's answer. Carl preached a couple weeks ago in Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So that's Herod's answer. Again, you can't deny the power. It demands an explanation. He's the resurrected John the Baptist. That's Herod's answer. That's one of the things the disciples says. The second is Elijah. And if you, if you know your Old Testament, Elijah is kind of the epitome of the powerful prophet. In one of the darkest times in Israel's history, he was the mighty man of God who faced the enemies of God. And so throughout Israel's history, he was kind of the picture of this powerful warrior for God in really dark times. And on top of that, Malachi, in the last book of the Old Testament, gives this prophecy in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers their children and the hearts of the children to their father. So there's Elijah, this great picture. And then there's this prophecy that Elijah will come before the last days and he'll just start doing these incredible things before the great day of the Lord. People see Jesus doing these incredible things and some of them conclude, oh, he must be who Malachi was talking about. This must be Elijah. Another answer that apparently is given is Jeremiah who is another just major prophet in the Old Testament in in the Jewish kind of background of this time, a couple hundred years after the Old Testament ends and before the New Testament begins, there was a very popular teaching that Jeremiah and Isaiah would come together again before the end times. And so perhaps that's what's going on here. Some people think, These incredible day of the Lord-like things are happening, so this must be Jeremiah. And then the generic answer, he's, he's one of the prophets. 
which is people, you know, they're not wanting to be too specific, but whoever he is, he belongs in the group of the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and Ezekiels. He's this incredible leader. He's someone that will be remembered. So those are all the answers that are being given. The disciples are reporting them that, you know, they, as Jesus is doing these incredible things, they're in the crowds. So they're hearing stuff. And so they're telling Jesus, here's who people think that you are. And then Jesus turns to them and asks them their answer. Turns to them in verse 15 and says, what about you? Verse 15. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the most important question in all history finally gets the correct answer. For the past two years, we've been building up to this. Who is this great miracle worker? Who is this wonderful teacher? Who is this gentle and lowly savior who stoops down to welcome the leper that has had nothing but rejection their entire life? Who is this mighty man of God that will take the abusive leaders of Israel and put them in their place and expose their wicked, self-righteous hearts. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the great confession. Now, because we use that term all the time, Jesus Christ, we sing it all the time, we talk about it all the time, it's really important to dial into what, does, what is Peter actually confessing? What is he meaning by making this great confession and why is it sending shockwaves through the group? Because Jesus Christ or Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? So we call him Jesus Christ. That's not like saying Jared Lawson. Rather, this is a title, if you will. He is the Christ. He is God's anointed one. He's God's sent deliverer. He's the Messiah. He's the promised Savior. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these promises that someone's going to come and they're going to restore and they're going to save and they're going to reestablish God's reign and rule. That's what the Old Testament hopes are hanging on. And here, that's what Peter's pointing out. You are the Christ. Christ, you could say, is a summary of his mission. The one who's coming to restore and in this, we see Peter isn't just confessing the, the kind of climax of Matthew up to this point. Peter is confessing the climax of the scriptures up to this point. Everything since Genesis 3 has been waiting for this confession. Every bit, every verse in the 39 books of the Old Testament has been waiting for this confession since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and were banished from the garden home with God that we were all made for. We have constantly been hoping for a way back. That's where we were made. Death isn't there. Death's out here where we've been banished. How do we get back? And there's this hope. Maybe Cain and Abel will do it. And then we see that doesn't work out. One is murdered by the other one. Well, maybe Noah will do it. He builds the great ark. You know, we decorate our kids' rooms with that story. And then 
Noah fails pretty drastically. Okay, well, maybe Abraham will do it. And then he fails drastically. Well, maybe Moses will lead God's people out of Egypt. And then Moses fails. Well, maybe one of the priests. We have got this system now where people can lead us into the presence of God. And then every single priest fails terribly. And then the sacrificial system basically just guarantees we don't die when we go into God's presence. That's not garden paradise, joy with our God. Well, maybe great King David, the man after God's own heart, the shepherd in the field who wrote the majority of our Psalms, maybe he'll finally redeem us and bring us back to God. And then he fails tragically. Your scriptures up to this point scream at you, we need a savior. And he hasn't come yet. All we see is failure up to this point. We need a savior is the cry of your Old Testament. And running parallel to that cry are these sweet promises that one day one will come. It isn't Abel. It isn't Moses. It's not even David. But one day someone will come and he'll crush the head of the serpent. And he'll undo all that's been broken. It's not Abraham, but someone will come from Abraham's family that will bring this universal blessing to the world. It's not David, but one day a son of David will come and he will bring perfect reign and rule. The prophets like Jeremiah would declare one day someone is going to come and he will restore and he will renew. And so we have running side by side Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the cry, we need a savior, and one is coming, and Peter is saying, here he is. You're here. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the great confession. Who does man say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the most important uh, question in the scriptures, and it is the most important question for you. Who do you say he is? Is he a great example? Is he a great teacher? Is he an inspiring prophet? That's Islam's answer. Is he a political figure? He's this kind of abstract idea of goodness and morality that we should follow. Is he just someone that we, you know, walk in his steps? What would Jesus do? We just try. He's just a, a good idea that we should, again, try to conform our behavior to. Is he a ticket to heaven? You just accept this guy into your heart and then you get not hell forever. Who do you say that he is? Is he any of those things, or is he the Christ, or let me put it more specifically, is he your Christ? It's very important for you to see, Peter is not just introducing new information. He is confessing something on which all of our hopes hang. He's not just quite simply saying, here's another development in the storyline of Scripture. Rather, he's saying, you're here. The one we've been longing for is here. Does Peter's confession send lightning down your spine? Does hearing those sweet words answer a cry you have in your heart? I need a Savior. Here he is. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, 
commentator, most famous for his commentator, he's also a pastor, says this, this question, this is a question we should, every one of us, be frequently putting to ourselves, who do we say, what kind of one do we say that the Lord Jesus is? Is he precious to us? Is he in our eyes the chief of 10,000? Is he the beloved of our soul? If someone were to have lunch with you, or if I were to have lunch with you, and say, who is Jesus? Are you going to give me correct answers? Are you just going to kind of give me the test answers? Or are you going to tell me about someone you know? He's my savior. He's my king. I do what he says, not because I've got this law book called the Bible, but because I want so badly to honor him and glorify him. He's my life. He's the one that came and did what I could not do for myself and give me completely by his wonderful grace a life that I could have never attained on my own. Do you see the difference between those two things? That's the great confession. He's here. Our Savior is here. We need a Savior. That is the cry of our sinful hearts. It's not me that's going to save myself. It's no one out there who can save me. It is Him, and it is Him alone. That's the great confession, and that is the sweet confession that should exit your lips every morning. The confession that you should live by. My Savior is here. He's come the one who we've been longing for and waiting for that will finally make things not like this anymore and solve this problem is here. He's come. That's the great confession. So, we've made it. We've made it to this point in Matthew. We're seeing the hinge point. This is what the whole scriptures have been waiting for. Jesus is the Christ. And so next, let's look at, Peter makes this great confession, and Jesus is going to give us a pretty unique reaction. So let's look at Jesus' reaction. This will be the next section we walk in called the keys. The keys. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him. So Peter gives this great confession, and Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus, in this remote place, having this intimate conversation with his disciples, hears Peter's correct confession, and it leads him to give the greatest praise he gives anybody. Jesus is not having to be patient. I, th- I, I didn't check, but I think this is the first time where Jesus asks the disciples a question and their answer doesn't make him say, no, but it's fine, I'm gracious. He bursts out in blessing. And this word blessed is meant to make you think back to the great Sermon on the Mount. How did that sermon start in Matthew 5? The great Beatitudes. What are the people of the kingdom of God like? They're blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. 
These wonderful kingdom realities we saw in the Sermon on the Mount are now being proclaimed onto Peter as he makes this great confession. This confession, you could say, fills him with this blessing, this holy joy that is for the people of the kingdom. And Jesus goes on, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this great confession of Peter is not due to his cleverness. Again, if anything in Matthew has shown us, it's that they, I don't think they have the ability to deduce this, right? He's not Sherlock Holmesing. okay, feeds the 5,000, teaches good, heals Christ. Okay, I get it now. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is saying, nothing short of the God of the universe, my Father, the eternally wonderful God who said, let there be light, is the one who's opened your eyes to this reality. That's why I prayed for him to open our eyes to this reality. The revelation comes from him. It doesn't come from our abilities to get there. Blessed are you, Peter. My father has opened your eyes to this. And then Jesus goes on to verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus blesses him, and now he's going to give him a gift. He's going to give him keys. So this is, we're going to have to buckle up a little bit. This is one of the most debated passages in the scriptures throughout church history, specifically on church authority. Uh, and so we're going to unpack that. I want to, I want to look at first the, the overall picture of what Jesus is saying here, and then we'll try to unravel some of the debate, and hopefully I can do a good job and we don't all become Catholic after this. Uh, but... So Jesus has just heard he's being confessed as the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that all the hopes of the scriptures have been waiting for. He's the one that's going to come bring about the kingdom of God and restore all that's been lost. And now he is showing the way that that confession is going to spread throughout the world through his church. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So see two things there. One, Jesus is the one building his church. Again, Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff here and leave, and then I hope you guys got it. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He began the good work. He will be faithful to finish it. He's the one building his church. And then notice that second phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When there's the church and hell, who's on offense and who's on defense? And is that how we typically view the dominion of darkness? Hell's the one with the gates. Hell's the one whose gates are not going to be able to stand against the church, against the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ piercing through the dominion of darkness. You are very much on offense in this fight with the devil. We are not cowering, waiting for him to come back because the world is just too powerful. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The harder hell fights against the church, the more it spreads, the more victory it causes Paul, Saul, tries to stomp out the church and he accidentally sends 
the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And guess what happens? The gospel is preached where they are sent and people become Christians and churches are planted. And guess what happens then? More people are sent out who are persecuted and then keep going and the gospel keeps going. And then Paul himself, ironically, the same thing begins to happen to him. He goes, gets beat up, keeps going. The harder hell punches, the more the gospel advances. And we see that in Acts. We see that all throughout church history. Every one of our missionary heroes, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, suffered terribly. And there are thousands who praise the name of Jesus as a result. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, even when all you see around you is darkness. So that's the picture that he's painting. Now let's battle the Catholics. Okay, so... (laughs) The rock, the keys, and binding and loosing, what does that mean? What are we talking about? Who is that? What is that? That's the really, really debated thing. There are a lot of views. I'm going to give you two. Okay, one, because we don't have four hours and this isn't a seminary class. And two, in my seminary class, I had a professor who was great, Donald Fairburn, who said, people think I have the gift of making complex things simple. I don't actually do that. I just decide what's primary and what's secondary, and I just say the primary thing. So that's what I'm going to do. So there's two main views, nine, two main ones, and then nine ones that if you go to seminary, you'll hear about and be like, that's wrong. Uh, So the first is one that we don't hold to. You can tell that by the lack of incense in this room. That's the Roman Catholic view. Okay, and so they would say, what is Jesus saying here? You are Peter. Peter's name means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And I will give you, singular Peter, the one I'm looking at and talking to, the keys to the kingdom. And what you, Peter, bind on earth will be bound in heaven what you loose on earth will be bound in heaven. So they would look at you and say, you with your sola scriptura convictions, why don't you read the Bible, right? Peter is getting the keys. Peter is getting the authority of the church. He is talking to Peter the person, okay? So this, I'm, I'm being a Catholic right now. So this is why, you know, if I'm just thinking like, this gets spliced and posted, people are like, whoa. Uh, okay. The Catholics would say, Roman Catholics would say, Jesus is saying the rock is the person Peter, and his successors, which they hold Peter's the first pope, and there's an unbroken uh, line of succession between Peter and Pope Francis, which is wrong, but that's what they say. Uh, they've got their arguments for it. Um, so they would say, he gives it to Peter, Peter's the rock, and then Peter's successor is the rock, and Peter's successor is the rock, and, and on and on we go until we get to Pope Francis today. And so Peter's the rock, Roman Catholic would say, and then what's, what's, what's the keys all about? Okay, so keys, you think of just the imagery, it's one of uh, opening and closing doors, which, which lends the idea of granting or eliminating access, granting or restricting access. So I have the keys to my house, which means it's my house. That's kind of a symbol. I get to say who gets to come over by unlocking the door and opening it and letting you come into my house. And I get to say who doesn't come over by locking the door and closing it and saying, you stay out there. You're not allowed in here. Okay, and so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the keys. So a Roman Catholic would say, the Pope, Peter and his successors, gets to say who's in and who's out. Okay, 
And binding and loosing, again, somewhat self-explanatory. You bind something and you lose something, let it go. It's very related to that. You get to determine what is doctrine. You get to bind things and they'll be bound in heaven. And you get to determine who is in and out of the kingdom, bind and loose, those sorts of things. So they would say, uh, Protestants will typically say, we believe in the scriptures alone, which is true. And Catholics believe in scripture plus church tradition. And by that, they mean the teachings of the Pope with the keys, if he's sitting, there's a term called et cathedra. If, he's, if he makes a declaration from the seat, then it is authoritative and on the same level as scripture. And we don't like that as we shouldn't. They would say to us, look where we got that. Stop accusing us of not holding our Bibles in our hands. The Bible's the one who tells us that. Okay, so they would say, Jesus tells us, we say something is true, it's bound in heaven. We say someone is a Christian, We've opened the door, that's bound in heaven. We excommunicate somebody, they are not a Christian. So when the Pope excommunicates you, it's not like, but he might be wrong. No, they would say, you are forever damned because he has just shut the door on you because he has the keys. Okay, so that is, that is very core uh, to Roman Catholic theology. If you go to the Vatican, you'll see their, their flag uh, is yellow and white and it has keys crossed on it and referring to this passage. If you're ever uh, walking around Rome or a place like that and you're like, there's all these statues of, you know, Bible figures and you see someone with keys in his hands, that's Peter, okay? Uh, because that's where they're drawing it from. And so that would be their argument there, what they would say, their biblical argument for church authority, okay? So they would say, sometimes they attempt to say, we believe in the scriptures, right? They're authoritative and the scriptures are the ones who told us to do that. Okay, so that's, that is the, the primary view of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, we say, I don't think so, right? No incense in here. This collar doesn't have a white part, right? So we're not Catholic if you're new. We don't hold to that view. Uh, the second view, second primary view, which is the most generically Protestant held view, is that the rock is Peter's confession, the Christ confession that Peter has just made, or if you want to say it another way, Peter, so long as he holds to that confession, his status depends on confessing rightly. And a really good argument for that is we'll see as we go to the next section, Peter's confession changes and Jesus no longer says he's the rock, says he's a hindrance. And that Greek word for hindrance literally means stumbling block. So the rock of Peter is no longer going to be the thing that the church is built on. He's now a stumbling block because his confession changed. He no longer was confessing him as the Christ. He had a very different thing in mind. We'll see that in the next section. So this view would hold that Peter, it's not just Peter the person, it's Peter the correct confessor. Does that make sense? So long as Peter rightly declares the gospel of Jesus Christ, so long as he is then holding the authority of the church. This is actually what the early church I uh, believe John Chrysostom, who's a fam famous early church father, said, upon this rock, I will build my church. That is on the faith of Peter's confession. Okay, so to say it another way, the keys are given to the correct confessor. So Peter changes his confession. He no longer holds those keys. A church says Jesus isn't God. Guess what? They are no longer a church because their confession has changed. And then another key thing here is, is Difficult, but this Greek wording for what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven is very hard to translate. It's probably better translated, what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That's really awkward in the English, but here's the very, very important thing. 
Jesus is not saying, Peter's the captain now. What you say, heaven will respond and do. Peter leads, God follows. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when Peter gives this confession, or when Peter says, repent and come into the kingdom, as he does in Acts 2, or when Peter says, you can't come into the kingdom because your confession is off, as he does in Acts 8, when he's exercising the keys, what he's doing is saying, Jesus has already said this is how it goes. Jesus has already told me the gospel. I'm just repeating it. I'm just trying to be faithful to what Jesus has already said. Again, his confession is what is important for the keys. Does that make sense? Blank faces. If not, sorry, that's all I got. Let's get coffee and I'll give you some of the other things. Okay, let me give you another example. So we do see this in Acts. You see this in Acts 2. Peter, exercising the keys, proclaims the gospel. People cry out, what must I do to be saved? Another way of saying, how do I get in? How do I get the door opened to me? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Peter in that moment is not inventing repentance and is not inventing baptism. He's saying, this is what heaven has already said. I'm I'm repeating. Does that make sense? Okay, so another example would be Parkway, membership. If you're a member here, we don't just say, you want to join? Cool. We make you go through the class, but we, we want you to understand who we are as a church. We wanted you to see that we hold to this confession. But then secondly, we will hear, do you understand the gospel? We will then hear your testimony. Has that gospel transformed your heart? Have you been affected by the gospel? And if you have the door, the keys are exercised and the door swings open and you enter into membership of our church. If you don't understand the gospel, or if it's obvious that you think the gospel is, I work really hard and God rewards me for my goodness, that door stays shut and we continue to minister to you until your confession lines up with the gospel. Does that make sense? So we do this. That's us exercising the keys. And similarly, when we excommunicate someone, we, if someone persists in sin in a way that shows, I don't think the gospel has actually taken effect in their life. They love their sin more than Jesus so habitually and they refuse to repent. We can no longer affirm that they're a Christian. And so it's not us saying like the Pope, we're declaring you're not a Christian and that declaration becomes reality. We're saying, we don't think the reality has actually changed your heart of the gospel. And so you need to be removed from membership again in hopes that you would repent and believe the gospel. And so we do this, even though it's technical language. We'll get into this more in Matthew 18. And I know after this, you guys are like, can't wait. Um, But we'll see uh, more kingdom keys language again. It's tricky stuff. There's a reason things get debated for thousands of years and there's a reason why God made coffee and it's to try and explain it better. So if this was unhelpful, Carl can try uh, or Lee. Uh, Okay, so all this is happening. Jesus is saying, yes, there's this great confession. There you are, blessed Peter. My father has revealed this to you. Here's how that confession is gonna spread throughout the world. The gates of hell will not prevail. I'm gonna build my church. There's this great climactic moment. And then all of a sudden he says, and don't tell anybody. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged them or charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, which should make you think, isn't that the opposite of the thing we're like supposed to do? Isn't that what Jared and Lee and all these guys yell at me all the time? Go tell people that he's the Christ. Isn't that what evangelism is? What is Jesus doing? And now we need to get to the third section because Jesus tells the disciples this. And if you've been noticing, he's been telling a lot of people this. 
He heals someone and he strictly charges them, tell no one. It often doesn't work <laughs> and they go tell everybody, uh, but he's having to tell a lot of people to be quiet. This happens all throughout all the gospels. It's been happening throughout Matthew and now he says it to the disciples. So what's going on here? Why is he telling his evangelists to stop talking? Especially after such a great celebration of, yes, God's shown you this. We have the correct answer for the first time. Now keep it quiet. What's he doing? So here's where we get to the absolutely essential point that makes all the difference between Jesus' greatest praise, what we're about to see, Jesus' greatest rebuke. And that's the cross. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Okay, what's going on here? Okay, so first of all, I said in my intro, this is the hinge point uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Look in verse 21, that, those first three words, from that time, that's Matthew showing you the hinge. Everything else has been leading up to this, and from this time, things are gonna be different. Everything else, Jesus, or every, uh, I guess, 16 to one, Jesus has been with the crowds. He's been displaying these great miracles. He's been healing people. He's been multiplying food. He's been calming the storms with a lot of people. And now the primary way Matthew is going to unfold the gospel is Jesus is going to spend a lot of time with his disciples, a lot of time explaining. And he's not going to be in Capernaum in Galilee. He's going to slowly be journeying closer and closer to Jerusalem. And that is to say he's journeying closer and closer to the cross. So from that time, Jesus began to show, to explain, to make clear to his disciples in this great moment, this great confession that he is the Christ, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So there's this great, yes, I am the Christ climactic moments, and then he says, so I'm going to be killed. And all the excitement in Peter's heart vanishes in an instant. Verse 22, Peter, hearing this, takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter has just confessed, the one I'm looking at is the hoped for Messiah. The one I'm looking at is the son of the living God. And what Jesus says to him is so angering to him, so insulting to him, he somehow assumes I must know better than the son of the living God and I must do everything I can to stop this. Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you which in the English is really not strong enough. He's either, the, the first phrase either means, it's somewhat difficult to translate, either means may God never let this happen to you. Another way of saying God forbid, or worse, him saying, may God have mercy on you for saying this. Assuming that it's sin. 
May God have mercy on you for, for saying such a ridiculous anti-Christ-like thing in Peter's mind. This shall never happen to you. So what is happening? Why is he so upset with Jesus? This is no light correction. He's not, wait a minute, are you sure about death? This is a rebuke. He's confident in what he is saying. So what's actually happening here? Peter's expectations for the Messiah and every Jew in Peter's day, again, know their Bibles. They know the Old Testament promises and they have very strong expectations for the Messiah. And you know what those were? Victory and glory. Victory and glory. This is going to be David's son who's going to put us back on top just like we were in David's day times a billion. Somehow he's going to reign forever, right? We are going to finally get back on top of this world and throw off the shackles of Rome. So they have a very clear expectation for what the Messiah is. He's going to defeat Rome. He's going to get us back on top of the world. He's going to fix all of our problems here and now. All that, if a Roman soldier asks you to go a mile, go with him to stuff, not for long, right? Because Rome's not going to be a problem anymore. My temporal circumstances will be fixed soon when this great Christ goes and takes his seat on the throne and everyone's serving him and I'm one of his disciples, so everyone will soon be serving me. I'm going to get to share in that glory. That's Peter's expectations. I'm about to have the good life now as Jesus goes and removes every obstacle in my way. And now Peter hear, hears, after this great moment, Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to go to the leaders. But instead of sitting on the throne and having a crown placed on my head and beginning my military strategy to overthrow the most powerful nation that's ever existed, I'm going to be killed by those leaders. I'm going to be buried in Jerusalem. And Peter can't take it. It's so infuriating to him. It destroys all that he has dreamed for. He must put a stop to it. And so his great confession turns into a great misunderstanding, a very great misunderstanding. And Jesus is going to respond to him, respond to his rebuke. And this is going to show us the kind of core of the matter. This is going to show us the difference between misunderstanding who he is as the Christ and truly knowing who he is as the Christ. Verse 23, this is Jesus' response. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter's great confession turns into a great misunderstanding and Jesus' greatest praise turns into his greatest rebuke. He never calls the Pharisees Satan. This is the harshest rebuke he gives. Calls him Satan because he is a hindrance, literally a stumbling block, literally a temptation, a trap for him. What Jesus is saying is what you're doing right now is what Satan already tried to do in Matthew 4. Don't pursue the Father's will. Don't pursue the Father's glory. I'll give you all the kingdoms here. Now, look, here they are. Just bow down to me. I'll give you earthly glory. I'll give you great victory over Rome. All you have to do is worship me and not your father alone. You see what Peter's doing. It's almost the same temptation. 
You have aligned yourself, Peter, in assuming I'm a means for your end with Satan himself. That's Peter's mistake. So the question we need to ask is, how do you make that mistake? And how do we avoid that mistake? Peter wants a Christ without the cross. Peter is very happy to have a Savior so long as the Savior saves him in the way that he determines good. And so long as the Savior saves him from the things that Peter wants save salvation from. Peter wants a Messiah, but he wants a Messiah on his own terms. And there is no more terrifying mistake to make. The terrifying warning of the scriptures is it is possible to confess Jesus is the Christ while radically misunderstanding what that means. We saw a very similar terrifying warning in Matthew 7. There will be many, Jesus says, who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great works in your name? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. It's possible to call him Christ. It's possible to call him Lord and even do what you think is his service and not truly know who he is. And that's the mistake Peter is making, trying to use Jesus for his own ends. Trying to twist what that means for him to be the Christ and the son of the living God. And the way you avoid that is just the simple reality, grasping Jesus sets the terms of who he is. You do not dare mold him to try and fit your own ends. The son of the living God will not be a means to anybody else's end. He will not be used to deliver you from what you think are your greatest enemies. He's here to walk in the Father's will and to, through great pain and suffering, pursue and purchase the Father's glory. He will not be twisted by man. He will not be tempted to temporal, cheap glories here. So the center of the matter of this is you cannot have Christ without the cross. You cannot have Christ without the cross. This son of the living God, for him, glory does come through suffering. Victory does come through the cross. Life, eternal life, does come through death. And we'll see next week, Carl will preach next week, that's also true for you. Your glory, your victory does come through this Messiah, but it will come through you picking up your cross and following him to Jerusalem. Glory does come, but through a cross. And I want you to just see here. This could, if, you, if we're here with Peter and you hear this, you know, as pastors often preach, there's such a temptation to think, okay, yeah, stuff's gonna be better later. We just gotta kind of begrudgingly endure now. I would really like, I mean, it's like a kid. I would really like candy now, but steak is better, I guess. So I won't have the candy now. But I, I mean, in the, the candy now is awesome. And sometimes I'm not in the mood for steak. And so you're like, okay, yes, I'll do the Jesus thing. And what I want you to see is we have two gospels in this passage. We have the gospel of Peter and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the victory that Jesus is after, that Peter thinks is defeat, is so much infinitely better 
than the best that this world has to offer you. He's not here to defeat Rome. You know who he is here to defeat? The enemy whose darkness and might makes Rome on its best day look like an ant bite. The serpent who tempted Adam and Eve and got us into this whole mess in Genesis 3, he's here to finally crush his head. That's enemy number one. Enemy number two is the undefeated enemy of death. That terrible reality that did not exist before Adam took a bite, but floods in and has been undefeated ever since, except for one, we'll see that in a second. Everyone in this room will die. Death is undefeated. And he's here to give it its death blow. He's here to kill death through the cross. That's enemy number two. And enemy number three is what Peter so tragically does not see. And that is that poison running through your veins called sin. That heart of stone that knows nothing but rebellion against the living God. He's here not to just give another set of rules for you to fail again. He's here to finally heal. Those shackles that have helped you, or helped, held you bound for your whole life. He's here to finally break. Your biggest issue is not external circumstances. Your biggest problem is internal. Peter doesn't see it. Those are the enemies that he's here to destroy. That's the victory he's here to bring. He's not here for temporal, circumstantial healing. He's here for eternal healing. He's here to make everything sad come untrue. He's here to atone for every failure you've ever committed, to pay for it as if you never committed it. He's here to remove every shame and turn every shame to joy. He's here to take all those stains of guilt that you feel weighing you down and wash them away. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. He's here so that by your stripes you won't just have, by his stripes you won't just have temporary healing but actually eternally be healed. And he's not just here to say, your debt's forgiven, try again. He's here to actually clothe you in his righteousness so that when the Father who's just revealed this to Peter looks at you, he doesn't see all your failure from today and yesterday and your whole life. He sees Jesus' perfect success. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become, we might become the righteousness of God to bring you into his family so that the father doesn't just call you generic my people, but calls you my child, calls you my adopted son and daughter. He's here to bring life, resurrection life. Notice how Peter somehow just totally misses the resurrection. Jesus plans, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be killed by the leaders and I'm going to be raised. And that last part, Peter just, I guess, doesn't process. He's just focused on the cross and Jesus is here saying, I'm going to be raised. There's life on the other side of this death that I'm going to, eternal life. That's where the victory is in that eternal life where you will finally be brought home. When the garden cherub's flaming sword comes down on him, the way is finally opened back to life 
You can go and live forever in the happy land of God where doubt never comes and you'll never sin again. And you'll actually love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength forever. And all of your faith, every longing will be turned to sight and you'll gaze in his wonderful face and you'll see his, feel his wonderful embrace. That is what is on the other side of this cross that is so much infinitely better than Rome being defeated. The Huns can do that. All of your circumstances here will go away and you will one day, like Paul say, the circumstances of this life, even the sufferings of this life, are not worth even comparing to the glory that is to come. You see, it's not one's better because it's longer. Steak and candy. This is the greatest feast ever in sand. Mud pies versus a holiday at the sea. Infinite joy versus something that's killing you. It is so infinitely better. May we not be as blind as Peter and think that my problems here and now are what you're here to fix when he is after your eternal problems, which starts with your own heart. So how do we avoid this mistake? I would say the litmus test for you is simply ask the question, when you think of Jesus, do you primarily think of what he can do for you or what he has done for you? When you wake up, and you crack open the scriptures. And when you pray, are your prayers primarily to a powerful God who hopefully can fix your circumstances? Or is it praise of the eternity that's already been bought for you? One, I mean, you can pray for a safe journey to places. I'm not, you can pray for circumstances being fixed. I'm not saying that, but you see the difference. I've got frustrations here. Please put all your efforts into that versus you've healed me and you've bought for me eternity with you, and you've paid my debt. One is the things of man, one is the things of God. So as we close, let me just give Jesus' exhortation here that he gives to Peter. Don't follow where Peter's eyes go. Don't follow where Peter's mind goes. Set your eyes on the things of God. Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, it's almost pulled from this story today, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Why should you keep your eyes up on him? Why should you set your eyes on the things of man? That's where your life is, hidden in this wonderful, revealed Savior. So look to him and live by the cross, glory in the cross. We will see all throughout the New Testament, constant boasting in what? The cross. This great shame in Peter's heart, this thing he's embarrassed by, this thing he thinks he needs to rebuke Jesus for, he will go spend his life proclaiming boldly because the lights will be turned on and he will see 
how infinitely better it is. May we follow him, not in this passage, but as his lights are turned on. Seeing who your Savior is, seeing the wonderful Savior that he is, and living in light of his glorious cross. Let's pray. Father, we ask you again, as we sing, as we come to your table, that you would open our eyes, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see the wonders of your son's gospel, that we would not listen to the temptations of the enemy, much less participate in the temptations of the enemy by trying to cheapen his gospel, making it a crossless gospel. May we view our circumstances here and now in light of the glorious eternity he's bought for us so that we don't ignore them as if we don't have something to do here, but we might, like Paul, say, they're, they're here, but they're not worth comparing. I've got eternal glory with my Father and with my sweet Savior waiting for me. May you, by your Spirit, open our eyes to that even as we take communion. Father, we pray in your Son's wonderful name. Amen.